This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. What thyroid function test should you do? And what do the results mean? What were you clinically looking for? And How do these results guide you and your patient toward their choice of longer-term treatment if required? This highly informative podcast will help you gain confidence and skill in managing patients with thyroid disorders. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Professor Bruce Robinson. Professor Robinson, tell us about yourself. So I'm an endocrinologist uh, and I practice at North Shore Hospital and over the years during my practice of endocrinology I've really focused on the management of patients with endocrine tumours, so thyroid tumours, adrenal tumours and pituitary tumours and also patients with thyroid disease, uh, particularly autoimmune forms of thyroid disease, both Graves disease and Hashimoto's. Bruce, we're going to look at thyroid function tests today, so why don't I just leave the floor to you as you tell us what it is, what the test results really do mean, and which tests are really useful for GPs. Okay, so look, you, you would all be aware that when someone asks for their thyroid to be checked, generally speaking, um, people order a measurement of the free T4, the free T3, and the TSH, just to go through each of those hormones um, one by one. First of all, T4, as you know, has four iodine molecules on it, and it is only turned into the active form of thyroid hormone, T3, when the liver removes one of those iodine molecules from T4 to convert it into T3. And it's T3, which is the active hormone. There is no receptor per se for T4. There is only a receptor for T3. And the T3 receptor, you'll remember, is a a receptor which exists within the the nucleus of the cell um, and it is a transcription factor. So when T3 binds to the T3 receptor, that jumps onto various genes and turns them on or off. Now the level of T4 and T3 in the blood feed back onto the pituitary gland, which is responsible for the production of TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone. High levels of T4 and T3 turn off TSH, and likewise, low levels of T4 and T3 allow TSH levels to rise. Uh, And and that TSH is then used to try to drive even more production of T4 and T3 from what is often a failing thyroid gland. 
So in essence, they are the three hormones that we commonly measure. Um, they, the, the T4 and T3 exist in the blood in a protein bound form. Uh, that form is not active and it's only the free forms of those hormones, T4 and T3, that uh, have any activity. And as I've said earlier, it's T3, which is the active hormone. You should think of T4 as a pro-hormone or a pre-hormone, um, which has to be converted into T3 to be active. So when we actually order a test in general practice, really, it's a, we only allow really to start off with the TSH, is that right? That's right. Uh, the only way you can get around that is if you put a history on the form, which indicates that the measurement of T4 and T3 are also required or is also required. Uh, and and that, that means you have to have a patient who's on antithyroid medication or a person in whom you suspect um, central hypothyroidism. So a person, for example, with a pituitary tumour, you would not expect the TSH to necessarily be high uh, if they had hypothyroidism. In fact, it, it might be low, and that, that might be the fact that's leading to the low levels of T4 and T3. So under such circumstances, it would be justified ordering T4, T3, and TSH. Let's just start with the TSH that we can, in fact, order. Now, there's a whole range of uh, numbers. So talk us through when they are clearly abnormal and tell us what it means when things are marginally abnormal. Sure. So the other thing with all hormonal tests, and in fact, all biochemical tests for that matter, is to recognize that they, um, they are described as part of a normal range. The normal range in most laboratories involves collecting samples from a couple of hundred so-called healthy people and uh, measuring the hormone levels in those uh, people and then establishing the mean level plus or minus two standard deviations. Now, of course, that means some people are going to be above the average and some people are going to be below the average by definition. Mm -hmm. um, so if a person is more than two standard deviations, either above or below the level of TSH that the laboratory describes as being their normal range, mm -hmm. then by definition, they are quote unquote abnormal from a blood testing point of view but they may not actually be abnormal for the patient because this, this normal range is normally distributed. So it's important always when you're looking at, at levels of hormones to put them in the context of the patient's clinical setting. A patient with a, a TSH, for example, which is outside a normal range, which may be quoted as being up to 3.5, a person with a TSH of 5 may feel perfectly well. And, and they may have associated T4 and T3 levels, which are perfectly normal. And under such circumstances, you needn't necessarily regard that person's situation as being abnormal because clinically they are well. And I think that's one of the things that people often forget is that you've really got to keep these tests in a, a clinical context. Likewise, if a person has a very low TSH or a low normal TSH, say 0.2 or 0.3, that may not necessarily be abnormal for that person. What you've got to do is assess that abnormal result in a clinical context. So do a good physical examination and determine whether the person is actually hyperthyroid clinically and by taking a history and examining them and then decide, use that to help you decide whether you want to do any further investigations or whether you simply want to continue to observe. 
Let's just say that uh, the patient is indeed reasonably well in that all the signs tell you that the patient is not hypo or hyperthyroid and you want to monitor, how long would the intervals be before you repeat those tests? Look, that's often very much patient dependent. Um, and, and some patients become very anxious about simply observing ab so-called abnormal tests. I, I certainly wouldn't go repeating such tests in anything under three months, and I'd probably wait four to six months before repeating them in most people mm -hmm. because it's rare for the clinical course of such diseases to be very rapid unless it's a person who's transient, transiting through um, in, in the post-pregnancy situation, transiting through hyperthyroidism towards hypothyroidism. So under such circumstances, you might do it more frequently than that, but generally speaking, four to six months is an adequate time frame over which to repeat such tests. A vex question. I have heard people talk about uh, reverse T3s. Um, what is your take on these sorts of tests? Look, I, I honestly don't think reverse T3 measurements are of any great value at all. Um, it's T3, which is the active hormone. Some people believe that they preferentially shunt their T4 into reverse T3 rather than active T3. I'm not convinced that the literature supports any role for even measuring this hormone. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't measure it myself. I don't think it adds any value. A patient that has just been diagnosed with a autoimmune disease, uh, be it celiac or type one diabetes, would you uh, recommend that GPs also look for thyroid antibodies? And if so, which ones? Yes, look, th that's a very reasonable thing to do in a person like this. The, there is a, a cluster of autoimmune disorders known as the thyrogastric cluster. So people with um, parietal cell antibodies, uh, autoimmune adrenal insufficiency, uh, and also premature ovarian failure may have a higher incidence or do have a higher incidence of autoimmune thyroid disease and vice versa. So it's perfectly reasonable under such circumstances to specifically screen them for evidence of Hashimoto's disease. And to do that, one would look for an elevated TSH and also evidence of anti-thyroglobulin and anti-microsomal antibodies being present in the blood. Um, if they are present, generally speaking, I don't think there's any value at all in repeating the measurement of them. Because I just say to patients, this is a little bit like the antibodies develop, that develop after your vaccination. They, they don't tend to fluctuate. Any fluctuation is more commonly due to the measuring system itself than any clinically relevant fluctuation. And so I don't think there's any great value in repeating them again if they're positive. If they're negative, however, and one is still suspicious that this person may be over time developing evidence of Hashimoto's disease, certainly you can repeat the request for the measurement um, because they may become positive uh, having previously been negative. And again, the three to six months is a good time to use? Yes, it is. It is. But uh, just to reiterate the point, if the test is positive in the first instance, I don't think measuring it again to look to see that it's disappeared is a good use of taxpayer money. In fact, I think it's a very bad use of taxpayers' money. So if one is suspicious of Hashimoto's disease, the test to do is to measure the T4, the T3, and the TSH, because what mm -hmm. you're looking for is evidence of the development of hypothyroidism. Thyroid nuclear scans, I don't think generally help in this circumstance. 
but a thyroid ultrasound may be helpful because it may show evidence of nodule formation. And the, the main reason for knowing about these nodules, because they're generally regenerative nodules within the gland that's been affected by this autoimmune process. So small islands of tissue, if you like, trying to fight back to maintain the euthyroid state develop nodules. The main reason for knowing about those is so that you can monitor them. Because if they continue to grow and, and at some stage exceed 1 to 1.5 centimetres in diameter, then they become eligible for biopsy. Okay. Although in the presence of Hashimoto's disease, they are quite likely not going to be malignant. But you're really um, beholden uh, to undertake a biopsy of any nodule, even if, the, if you think it's in a Hashimoto's gland. So the test to do, first of all, is T4, T3 and TSH. And then if you're still concerned, an ultrasound, and that may show heterogeneous uptake, a heterogeneous pattern, not uptake, sorry, but a heterogeneous pattern on ultrasound, which is supportive of the diagnosis of Hashimoto's disease. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's a pathological diagnosis, but usually we don't go to the extent of doing a biopsy of a gland to prove Hashimoto's disease. We accept that the development of hypothyroidism and or goiter formation and elevated antimicrosomal or antithyroid globulin antibodies is sufficient to make that diagnosis. Bruce, I, uh, very briefly, what do we do then if a patient has confirmed Hashimoto's? So then again, it very much depends upon the patient's symptoms and, and also to a degree the height of their TSH. If a person had a TSH value up above 10, it'd be unusual for them not to have symptoms and under such circumstances, you would probably not hesitate to introduce a small amount of thyroxin in order to try to bring their TSH back down into the normal range. How far back into the normal range you bring it really depends upon how the patient feels along the way. Some people um, swear black and blue that they feel fine with a TSH of 3.5. <laughs> Other people complain bitterly until you get it down to one or two. In general, I aim to try to get it between one and two because, in my experience, it's within that range that most people feel reasonable. A lot of personalization here, isn't it, Bruce? I mean, you... well, there is, there is, and I think that's the the one thing I would like to uh, to hammer home in this in this podcast, which is about thyroid function tests, is that the thyroid function tests are an adjunct to the clinician uh, in exercising judgment about when to intervene to either investigate further or to treat. And an abnormal set of thyroid function tests doesn't necessitate either investigation or treatment. It necessitates vigilance and clinical observation and listening to the patient to just help you decide what you want to do and what they want to do. Now, let's just say we have a patient who is very good with understanding what's happening to their body, and therefore they work well with you in allowing you to, if you like, titrate the doses. There are some patients who are not that sensitive to how they're feeling. How much do you rely on physical examination to, uh, if you like, uh, supplement or complement your questions? Well, certainly physical examination is important, but really not as important as how the patient describes their feelings. You know, most patients will tell you that they've got hair loss or hair brittleness or nail brittleness rather than you being able to see it on physical examination. The main thing that you may pick 
up on physical examination that the patient may not complain about is the development of goiter um, because not all patients, even with sizable goiters, particularly if they've developed very slowly, have any symptoms at all. So assessing them from that point of view is very important. If they have a very large or a fat neck, it's often very difficult to convince yourself that you can feel anything and you really do need to undertake ultrasound then um, to, to assess the size of their gland. If they've got a thin neck, you can usually do that very well from a clinical point of view. But if they're overweight um, or for some reason they've got a very short neck, then that's often difficult and you really do need to resort to ultrasound under such circumstances. Let's talk about a patient whose TSH is incredibly low and, um, and they're clearly uh, hyperthyroid. Uh, what sorts of other things would you be looking for? So, so the first thing to do under such circumstances is to establish the cause for this. And, and history can be very helpful in that regard because the main causes of hyperthyroidism um, in our society, number one, people taking too much thyroxine, uh, number two, uh, Graves' disease, number three, viral thyroiditis, and then there are also some other people who have iodine-induced thyrotoxicosis. So they may have a hot nodule within their gland that sucks up any iodine that's given to them, usually in the form of, radio, of iodine contrast or in the form of kelp tablets or iodine supplements. And those people may convert that iodine into thyroxine and tertroxin molecules, which makes them thyrotoxic. So history is very important here. Uh, does the patient take thyroid hormone? Have they had a recent viral illness? Do they have tenderness of their neck? Do they have pain radiating up into their ears? These would be things that would suggest that there may be a viral infection of the gland. Do they have any evidence of problems with their eyes that might suggest concomitant Graves disease? Do they have you know, rarely any evidence of pretibial myxedema, which might be again suggestive of Graves disease? And, and very importantly, from a historical point of view, have they had any con uh, contrast um, scans done recently that might be um, suggestive of, of, uh, of iodine-induced thyrotoxicosis? So if you've taken a history and um, you're still no further ahead, then the next step is to examine the person carefully. If you find evidence of a soft, diffuse goiter, um, that might be associated with a brewery, then that would be suggestive of Graves' disease. If you find evidence of really very small goiter but acute tenderness of the gland, that would be much more suggestive of a viral disease. If you don't find anything much, again, that doesn't help you. Um, your physical examination is, is drawn a bit of a blank. And... Uh, uh, finally, of course, if, if they're taking large doses of thyroxine, then that can, of course, can suppress their gland and you may not find anything much then either. Um, while I'm talking about contrast, I should also mention, of course, amiodarone, which is not widely prescribed as an antiarrhythmic these days, but it is still prescribed. It contains a large amount of iodine and it may also be the source of excessive iodine causing uh, iodine-induced thyrotoxicosis. Just as a thought, um, is there much credence given to uh, gargling uh, with betadine uh, frequently? Um, look, that's another source of iodine that I should have mentioned. And in fact, 
I know the American Thyroid Association recommends that in parts of the world where there's a threat of nuclear attack, that having some betadine in the cupboard is not a bad idea because two or three drops of iodine can suppress the uptake of radioactive iodine into a normal gland. So if there was a nuclear explosion, then uh, that would be a good thing to have in the, in the medicine cabinet at home. Um, of course, if you happen to have a hot nodule, then taking those two or three drops of iodine might make you thyrotoxic, but the bulk of the population don't. And so that's why it's generally thought to be a reasonable public health recommendation to make. So to come back to our patient now who's got a suppressed TSH, really the, the issue is to try to establish are they symptomatic as a consequence of that. And if they are symptomatic, then um, I think, it, or, or they're elderly, then I think it's worthwhile undertaking investigations to try to get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. And generally, this is where a thyroid nuclear scan has real utility. Because if you do a thyroid nuclear scan in a person with Graves' disease, it'll show quite dramatic and quite diffuse uptake. If they have viral thyroiditis, where TSH is being suppressed by the release of hormone from the gland, then they'll show a, a, a very low levels or, or even sometimes no iodine uptake or protectinitate uptake into their gland. And so much so, you'll ask, did they give the, the isotope? Um, because, you know, occasionally they forgot. Usually you can look in the forearm and see that there's a bit of spillage of it, and that'll tell you that isotope was at least given. And then, of course, if they've got a hot nodule, then there'll be a very focused area of uptake into their gland. Um, and, and that helps you with that, that particular test, helps you enormously in deciding the treatment options that you might offer those patients to control their thyrotoxicosis. And what might those be? I knew you'd ask me that question. So they depend upon which of the diagnoses that we're dealing with. Let's deal with um, viral thyroiditis in the first instance. Um, that's generally due to a virus. And so an anti-inflammatory or an antipyretic such as paracetamol is generally the first line of treatment. Antithyroid drugs don't work well in this situation because the problem is not overproduction of thyroid hormone, it's excessive release of thyroid hormone that's been preformed. So treating people with uh, paracetamol in the first instance, and if that doesn't work, then moving them to prednisone fairly quickly to help try and decrease uh, the inflammation within the gland is the way that it's best to try to control this. And over a period of generally two or three weeks, one can wean the prednisone if you've had to start it, and hopefully during that time, the thyrotoxicosis will have settled. And then your main concern is that the patient doesn't become hypothyroid because there's been scarring of the gland because of the viral infection. And so watching those people over time um, to make sure their TSH doesn't go from being suppressed to being elevated is, is very important. If the patient has Graves' disease, the diagnosis of Graves' disease can be also supported by the measurement of another antibody, another thyroid antibody called thyroid receptor antibody, also known as thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin. This is a specific class of IgG, which actually binds to the TSH receptor on the surface of, um, of thyroid cells. And if you like, nudges TSH out of the way and stimulates the gland excessively. So the gland produces high levels of T4, usually proportionately higher levels of T3. So that's a bit of a giveaway sometimes to the diagnosis of Graves' disease. 
and of course the TSH is suppressed. So the measurement of thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins or thyroid receptor antibodies, as they're also known, is very important in the patient in whom you suspect Graves' disease. The treatment choice that's available to you then is either to use antithyroid medications, either neomercosol, also known as carbimazole, or its cousin, propylthiouracil. Which one of these you choose is really six of one, half a dozen of the other. There is a, a theoretical reason to use propylthiouracil in a young woman of childbearing age because it is alleged to be slightly safer to use in pregnancy. The data supporting that statement are pretty marginal, but nonetheless, it's generally accepted practice that PTU would be preferred over neomergosol in such circumstances. Why we don't choose PTU in other people is because it has a very bitter taste and it's not as palatable as, uh, as neomergosol is. It also is preferably given twice a day, whereas you can get away with giving neomergosol once a day to most people, and that makes compliance a bit easier. We generally like to treat people with antithyroid medication if they have Graves' disease for 12 to 18 months. And again, the value of having the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin or the thyroid receptor antibody measured initially is that you can watch the teta of that. And if it begins to fall, you can be more confident in reducing the dose of antithyroid medication you have the patient on. Whereas if it doesn't fall, then one is always hesitant to stop the antithyroid medication because the stimulating antibody, of course, is still there. There's a high likelihood that it will uh, reoccur uh, if, you, if you stop the antithyroid medication. Um, so 12 to 18 months of antithyroid medication and then a discussion with the patient about whether they are happy to continue that or whether they prefer to have a surgical option considered or um, alternately treatment with radioactive iodine. And uh, that, that discussion is one that I don't think is worthwhile confusing the patient with upfront, because it's also rather confronting that they come in with thyroid overactivity and, and in the next breath you're suggesting to them a treatment which is relatively irreversible, mm. uh, i.e. surgery or radioactive iodine. Mm. The treatment of thyroiditis we've talked about with paracetamol and prednisone, the treatment of a hot nodule, um, again, can involve uh, antithyroid medication, radioactive iodine or surgery. And which of these options one chooses is certainly very much determined by patient preference and also by other comorbidities that the patient might have. Um, you would probably be loath to recommend surgery in an 85-year-old who had heart failure, mm -hmm. whereas a small dose of antithyroid medication would be quite appropriate in such people. Whereas a 20-year-old might, after failing 12 to 18 months of antithyroid medication, say to you, look, I'd really rather have something definitive done about this um, rather than have to take these tablets, uh, chemicals, for the rest of my life. Because the alternative, i.e. surgery or radioactive iodine, may result in them taking a medication for the rest of their life, but that medication is thyroxine, which is a man-made copy of a natural substance mm -hmm. and far less problematic over the longer term than antithyroid medications. As a GP, um, what sorts of things do we need to know in helping the patient make a decision between surgery and radioiodine when you're looking at something like Graves' disease rather than the hot nodule? 
Yeah, look, it's a very important question. And, and again, it's very much dependent upon patient preference. I tend to favour surgery because we have good surgeons available to us at my hospital and they can undertake that surgery with a very low risk of complications. The operation that is recommended now is a total thyroidectomy in such people, not a partial thyroidectomy, which used to be done many years ago. In fact, partial thyroidectomy has now been removed from the medical benefit schedule for the management of Graves' disease because we know there is a high rate of recurrence of the Graves' disease in the residual tissue. The use of radioactive iodine, again, is generally for patients who are uh, opposed to surgery. A patient, for example, who'd had a recurrent laryngeal nerve injury or was, uh, for some reason, surgery was contraindicated, radioactive iodine can be given. The challenge with radioactive iodine is there are all sorts of algorithms for choosing what people think to be the right dose, but at the end of the day, it's a bit of a guess, mm -hmm. and you may end up either under-treating the patient or over-treating them, and quite commonly, you end up halfway between those two, so the patient settles down and then subsequently develops gradual hypothyroidism or they develop a recurrence of their Graves' disease. Mm -hmm. So... I'm not such a great fan of radioactive iodine as a treatment for, um, for Graves' disease. But if I was working in a part of the world where there wasn't good access to surgery, then it's a very viable alternative. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's, it's a great alternative um, for most patients. Just for the sake of our GPs in regional centres, are good thyroid surgeons um, available throughout Australia or would the GPs be better off referring uh, such patients to urban centres? Look, generally, they would be better to refer them to urban centres where there are surgeons who do at least 25 of these a year, 25 thyroidectomies a year. There is some evidence that that's a bit of a turning point in terms of skill set and, and outcomes. The most important thing is that the surgeon is well-trained as a thyroid surgeon. And there are, in some regional centres, surgeons who have trained in big city hospitals in good thyroid units. And I can certainly think of some in New South Wales, and I'm sure there are some in other states of Australia, where there are surgeons who are very capable mm. of doing the surgery, but they have to have been well-trained to do so. Mm -hmm. This is not the sort of operation that should be undertaken by people who do four or five a year. Mm -hmm. That would really be, you know, not in the patient's best interests. I, I'm really glad you've made this point so clear once again, um, Bruce, because it's one of those things that sometimes as GPs, we don't feel right to push uh, the surgeons and ask about the experience. But you make it very clear that it makes a huge difference to our patients. It does. And, and a surgeon who didn't report their outcomes, and of course, the two most feared outcomes of thyroid surgery are recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy or surgical hypoparathyroidism. People who don't report their rates of those complications really shouldn't be doing the surgery mm -hmm. um, because the, these are in big units. That is the yardstick by which surgical expertise is really measured. I know this is not within the scope of the discussion, but it sits very closely with um, a patient who has had a total thyroidectomy, and that's the destruction of the parathyroids. And how, as GPs, how should we 
be suspicious of it, monitoring, and when should we actually refer a patient off? So surgical hypoparathyroidism obviously occurs in a post-surgical setting, and it predominantly occurs because the surgeon has been unable to identify the parathyroid gland, and sometimes that's because embryologically it's literally buried within the thyroid gland rather than attached to the posterior aspect of the gland, and so it just can't be seen. It'd be unusual for a person to have destruction of all four of the parathyroid glands under such circumstances, but it does occur. And uh, it's usually very evident in the post-surgical period because the person develops paresthesiae and may even go on to develop overt tetany. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these patients just require a little bit of calcium and sometimes vitamin D or one, particularly 125-dihydroxy vitamin D for a few weeks until what residual parathyroid tissue they have is able to recover. Okay. Because often the destruction of or damage to two of the glands will leave two of the glands working but a bit underpowered. And over a period of a few weeks, they generally increase their function sufficiently to make the person normoparathyroid. That's really helpful. I think you've done a great job once again, Bruce, in teaching us uh, what tests to do, what they mean, and how we really ought not to continue treating numbers, uh, but really engage the patient to tell us uh, where they're at so we know to treat them and not the numbers. Look, there's, there's just two other things that I probably should touch on, David. Yep. One is, is um, patients who have thyroid function tests within the normal range despite being treated with thyroxine, who don't feel well. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there is a strong case to be made here for subtly adjusting a person's thyroxine dose mm -hmm. so as to try to move them within the normal range. Because as I've said earlier, by definition, 92.5% of the population lie within two standard deviations, either above or below the normal the, the average. And, and you know, someone is going to be at the top end and someone is going to be at the bottom end. And I think a bit of patience and working with the patient as you do those adjustments is often very helpful. Mm -hmm. The second question that comes up repeatedly is the utility or non-utility of T3, tertroxin. Now, T3 is available for the treatment of patients with thyroid cancer, and it's also available for people who have so-called thyroid hormone resistance. In reality, there are very few people who do have thyroid hormone resistance. There are some people who believe that they don't convert T4 to T3 very efficiently. There are people who believe that taking extra selenium will help that process be facilitated. And there was a movement led by a practitioner in North America to popularize this um, so-called failure of conversion of T4 into T3 syndrome. I'm not sure that it exists in people other than people with really chronic liver failure because the liver is where the enzyme 5 prime deiodinase exists. Unless you've got really severe liver dysfunction, you should undertake that process normally. Having said all of that, and having noted that there are studies that have shown no added benefit from adding T4 to T3 in most patients, there are some patients who do feel better, who mm -hmm. tell you that they feel better with the addition of a small dose of T3. 
And there are some people who go to compounding pharmacists to get a formulation which contains T3. I think we have to have an open mind to this, um, although we should not be pressured by people into prescribing this T3. But, nor, on the other hand, though, should we resist it if the patient really wants it. <laughs> as long as you can do it safely and if it makes the patient feel better, then our role as practitioners is, I think, to try to keep them better and to keep them feeling better as best we can. So in, in a small, small percentage of patients that I've got to emphasise that who need thyroid hormone supplementation, T3 may have a role. And I probably should just leave that at that. But what you need to tell me and to my friends and colleagues is what do you mean by do it safely? Well, do it in such a way that the patient doesn't have thyrotoxicosis. Okay. Because some people will actually argue they don't need T4 and that they would prefer to have T3, but it ends up that the dose of T3 that they take is a dose which is so high mm. that they actually suppress their TSH. Mm -hmm. Then we may be putting them at risk of both cardiac dysfunction, particularly atrial fibrillation, but also osteopenia or osteoporosis. So it has to be done cautiously, but um, you know, who am I to argue with a patient who says, I feel better with a small dose of T3? If it's not doing them any harm, and we can satisfy ourselves that it's not doing harm, then it might be helpful. Okay. Just a question about the, uh, if you like, the high prevalence of fatty livers these days. Yes. Um, does that really cause any problems to this uh, syndrome, the thyroid hormone resistance issue? Look, it's an excellent question, and I don't know the answer to your question. I've not seen any evidence that people with NASH, which is commonly known as these days, or fatty liver, have uh, impaired conversion of T4 to T3. I don't know that it's been studied. If it has, I haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's certainly something that after this, I will go and look up just to make sure that I'm not missing anything. Yeah, yeah, you just triggered in my mind because yeah. suddenly I went. It's a good thought. It's a good yeah. thought because we see plenty of fatty liver these days, that's for sure. Way too many, I'm afraid. I'm so glad you actually helped me back from concluding because these two are really, really important points. So what are your final and key messages to our GP listeners? The most important message is to listen to the patient because the answer is usually in the history, um, to then examine the patient carefully and to use thyroid function tests and imaging as an adjunct to both of the first two. Um, I would argue that 90% of the time, the answer to your patient's woes lies in their history. And taking the time to take that history and listen to them is very, very helpful. You do need, though, to confirm what your clinical suspicions might be by doing some of these other investigations that we've discussed today. Because as you would all be aware, the most frequent symptom that patients complain of when they've got thyroid dysfunction is tiredness. And tiredness in our community is a very frequent symptom, mm. which has lots of causes. And it's not always due to the thyroid. And, and you should be confident in saying to people, if you've done normal thyroid function tests and you're satisfied that it's not the cause, that there is some other cause for their tiredness. Because the poor old thyroid tends to be blamed for a lot of tiredness when it's not the culprit. <laughs> Thank you for those words of wisdom once again, Bruce. Always good to talk to you. Great. Thanks, David. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Bye. 
Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.